0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome,
1: welcome, welcome, welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hello and welcome to
0: The Roy Green Show podcast for this Saturday, June the 16th. Dan McTague kicks us off from GasBuddy.com on Doug Ford's move to drop gas prices by 10 cents a liter immediately, but that also then resulted in the Environment Minister Catherine McKenna threatening a federal carbon tax will be imposed to recover any savings at the pump for motorists. The last two weeks in Canadian and international politics, Donald Trump's meeting and signed agreement with North Korea's Kim Jong-un. Was it a win or a loss for the West? I spoke with Colonel Peter Mansoor, former executive officer, to General David Petraeus in Iraq. He's a professor at Ohio State University and the author of Surge. He said, and listen to this, he said... The score is DPRK 2, United States nothing. If Kim Jong-un does, in fact, move to denuclearize North Korea, what kind of arms inspection is going to be required? Tom Quiggin was a Canadian primary contributor to the podcast The Quiggin Report and was an arms control inspector under the Vienna Document and the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty. I spoke with Tom about arms inspection. Donald Trump says he's going to punish Canada because of Justin Trudeau's statements. What exactly might that mean for this country? Professor Christopher Adams joined me, political scientist and author based at St. Paul's College in Winnipeg. Time for our weekly Beauties and the Beast segment, the non-politically correct and blunt assessment of the week's biggest stories with Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca, Linda Leatherdale, the former money editor of the Toronto Sun and vice president of Cambria, Canada, and Michelle Simpson, former liberal member of parliament and seatmate to Justin Trudeau.
1: (laughs) Hit up Apple Podcast or Google Play and subscribe to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Roy you want, when you want it.
0: So, Mr. Ford, and this we're going to take this beyond Ontario's borders and right across Canada. But we'll start with the fact that Doug Ford has said he will drop gas prices by 10 cents a liter immediately in Ontario. And that will include the carbon tax. Dan McTague joins me, long-term Liberal Member of Parliament and Senior Petroleum Analyst for GasBuddy.com. It's getting so bad I can't even say Liberal anymore. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, maybe uh, less and less part of our vernacular these days. How are you? I'm fine, Roy. Good afternoon.
0: Good afternoon. Good to have you with us. Uh, what's the impact on Ontario's economy as far as cheaper gasoline is concerned? If Ontario drivers, and let me, we can expand this across the country... If people have a little, pay a little less for gasoline, that's going to help the rest of the economy, isn't it?
2: Well, gasoline, diesel, uh, home heating, uh, things like uh, natural gas, all of those things, if we remove the carbon tax, would certainly uh, have a stimulative effect. Um, if I'm looking at diesel, for instance, uh, in Ontario, that would be a decrease of some 6.6 cents a litre if they were to remove it in British Columbia. Highly unlikely, by the way. Uh, you're looking closer to 9 cents a litre. Uh, in Alberta, of course, uh, a little closer to eight on the diesel side, seven on the uh, on the gasoline side. Um, if you're looking at Winnipeg, which hasn't uh, in Manitoba, we haven't really uh, we don't have a carbon tax yet. We will uh, on September the 1st. So uh, as uh, people get ready for the new year uh, for kids getting back to school, carbon taxes there will rise about six cents a litre, a little less for gasoline, a lot more for diesel. So where does this I mean the direct costs? Uh, will be clear, uh, perhaps as much as four, five, six hundred bucks, average family using X amount of gasoline. But the indirect costs will also be noticeable in terms of transportation, delivery of goods, everything that moves by train, plane, or automobile or truck. will uh, will see decreases, which will be reflected at places like the grocery checkout.
0: So this is going to uh, it's going to definitely affect the the national economy, and it will affect the individual economies of uh, Canadian families.
2: Well, I think it will certainly be more stimulative and allow people to have a little bit more uh, money in their pockets uh, to be able to, uh, you know, to uh, appropriate that money uh, to more uh, purposeful uses that they need. Things like, you uh, know, paying for the groceries, uh, buying uh, the things that they need uh, to, to make ends meet. Uh, you know, these are all wonderful, Greek concepts. But at the end of the day, we know that they're not, as in British Columbia, but they're mm-hmm. not revenue neutral. They're used for other uh, programs and purposes. Um, you know, the sense is that, uh, you know, we want to tax those who are emitting carbon. And of course, that means uh, I, I do, by the way, have trouble with the word carbon and pollution, the same word, because I tend to see uh, from my days in grade school as uh, carbon is the giver of life, part of photosynthesis. But that aside, the reality here is that uh, there is uh, no doubt a need to look at environmental outcomes, but also to separate those, as it were, from those who uh, who believe that uh, taxes should only apply and uh, to consumers when it comes to uh, issues uh, in and around the issue of climate change.
0: You spent a lot of years in Canada's Parliament, and you were a senior member of Parliament uh, in the Liberal government of Jean Chrétien and then Paul Martin. When uh, when you hear that the government of John, of uh, of uh, Pierre Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, jeez. Yeah, <laughs> I've got them all mixed up. Justin Trudeau, when you hear the government of, the, of Justin Trudeau is going to jump in and fill the hole that they will presume exists as far as the carbon tax is concerned, if Doug Ford does away with the tax on gasoline, the carbon tax on gasoline, um, is that a is that a wise strategic move, or are they are they just so enamored with the idea of a carbon tax they can't see they're shooting themselves in the uh, yeah, in, in, in the foot, you know, these sort of self-inflicted gumshot wounds. Well,
2: I think part of what's happened this week um, isn't just, you know, what happened here in Ontario with the defeat of the Liberal government, which had uh, uh, promulgated and pushed the issue uh, to the point where consumers started to have to pay. I think we all talk about, you know, how wonderful these programs and plans are. But when, uh, you know, it comes down to actually paying for them, I think then people have a sort of a, a pushback and say, well, maybe we don't need to make these expenditures and are they in fact going to lead to lower emissions in Canada Uh, or are we doing something to be you know to be uh, on on par with other people around the world who are not necessarily uh, you know following our so-called leadership I think the cost is very prohibitive I think a government that walks away from pocketbook issues like the price of energy like the price of gasoline like the price of hydro uh, you know if we want to pursue this brave new world I think we have to do it uh, more cautiously, you know, mm. it's not one where we would see an increase of say thirteen, fourteen cents a liter. If the by twenty twenty two on January first, if I'm still around, uh, you're going to see an increase of about fourteen cents, thirteen cents a liter for gasoline, and about sixteen, fifteen cents for diesel with the federal government uh, backstop. So where the provinces are prepared to go, unless there's a Supreme Court challenge that is successful, get ready to spend a lot more, perhaps in the thousands of dollars per family, by uh, uh, you know three and a half short years away.
0: And we just found out, did we not, uh, earlier in the week, that the federal government really doesn't know what the cost will be to Canadian families once their carbon tax goes to $50 per ton. Well,
2: yeah, I mean, there are a number of analyses out there. I see Laurie Goldstein of, of uh, Sun News has put out something this morning from uh, uh, a professor who appeared before uh, the Senate committee and uh, broke it down uh, in 2017. that Ontario would be seeing... Average increases of about $900 in direct costs. Uh, Saskatchewan, Alberta, more towards $1,100. British Columbia already currently has, so an additional, I think, $600 from the uh, the diagram that I see here and the data that was provided. Those are just direct costs. Again, we don't have really a firm estimation, but I think the federal government does, and it had that documentation uh, made available uh, but when it was sent to uh, the opposition who would re- ask for it, regardless of the political games that were played, the reality is that much of the information was redacted. Uh, you kind well, of, you all know, of it, I mean, was. it might be old Yogi Berra. If you don't know where you're going, chances are you're going to wind up somewhere else. And if you don't have that data and information made available to the public, uh, I expect in 2019, you're going to see a bit of a shock at the polls.
0: Well, I have a feeling that the Liberal caucus uh, federally may be smaller than the one in Ontario by the end of October of next year
2: hard to say, but I think if they don't take heed and pay attention to the lessons learned from uh, from last week uh, in Ontario, uh, their base, then I think uh, there's a good likelihood that we'll wind up uh, very much as we were in 2011 when we pursued policies that uh, uh, certainly weren't uh, something that Canadians agreed with. Yes, there is a constituency out there that does support this, but they're divided among Green, NDP, and Liberals. So, You better sort of try to find pocketbook issues and get back to uh, standing up for consumers and ensuring that you have your facts correct and that they are, in fact, open and transparent. Otherwise, you will lose the election. Yeah, well,
0: you know, cost of living impacts any philosophical uh, persuasion that people may have as far as uh, government is concerned or the type of government they want. Cost of living is bottom line, and I remember speaking with Brad Wall when he was still the premier of Saskatchewan, and he told me on the program that the day after... The announcement was made about a, um, the uh, the carbon tax, pan Canadian carbon tax, by Justin Trudeau. He called the prime minister and he asked him if the federal government had done um, an economic Im- impact study. Yeah, and they hadn't. So it was just, you know, was, we want it and, and we're going to have it.
1: Want to hear more Roy Green? We've got you covered with the Roy Green Show podcast. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play.
0: Back to Dan McTague. Senior at Analyst with GasBuddy.com. Dan, Canadians are paying, in comparison to our American neighbors, exorbitant gasoline taxes. If Canadians insisted our gasoline taxes should be no higher than those of American drivers, we'd be hearing all manner of wailing that the world would end and Canada would collapse. Would it? And why are we paying a dollar more per U.S. gallon in in taxes, what are we getting for that money? Yeah, well,
2: it does go to general revenue, So uh, I guess the question is follow the uh, follow the money. Um, the U.S. numbers are much closer to twenty cents a liter. Uh, our numbers uh, are tracking much closer to forty plus cents a liter on taxes, all included. With uh, communities like Montreal at fifty four cents, uh, you know, uh, Vancouver at fifty two cents. Here, uh, where I live in Ontario, uh, you're looking at about forty-three, forty-four cents a litre. Of course, that's going to change. I mean, there's probably uh, a number of reasons why prices have increased uh, market-wise, but there's no doubt that adding, as we do in many Eastern Canadian provinces, a harmonized tax of thirteen, fourteen point nine seven five, and fifteen percent aggravates the uh, the cost. It also means, uh, as you and I spoke a few weeks ago. There is a significant, substantial windfall for governments as prices go up, they make more money, they don't necessarily have to disclose that. I estimate today that at price a dollar, average prices of $1.32 a litre compared to this time last year, that's about 24 cents higher. Uh, federal, provincial governments all told are picking up an extra $2 million a day. Uh, just in the higher revenue uh, as a result of those uh, harmonized taxes, especially in Eastern Canadian provinces.
0: So we don't know where the money's going. It's uh, it's in general revenue. Wasn't the fundamental agreement between the uh, the consumer of gasoline and and uh, transportation fuel that the taxes would look after the road infrastructure repairs? Wasn't that the basic agreement that was in place, well, at least morally right. in place?
2: Yeah, I mean, in, in many provinces, uh, Ontario being an example, they actually have a fourteen point seven cent road tax. Whether that's spent on roads remains to be seen, because we've obviously seen more taxes applied uh, with the HST with the provincial government in 2010, increasing from seven percent to six and seven percent at the time. The GST, in which only the federal government was involved, increasing it by eight percent. The effect, of course, is pretty substantial. Uh, at a dollar, you know, thirty-five a liter, you're looking at an additional near two cents a liter. Um, So there are taxes on taxes. uh, That alone amounts to, you know, $1.5 to $2 billion a year in additional windfall revenue for governments across the country, especially in eastern Canada. Yeah,
0: Dan, it's always good talking to you. Thanks for the sobering information and advice, always. Thank you, Roy. Dan McTay, GasBuddy.com.
1: The Roy Green Show podcast, ready and waiting for you anywhere, anytime. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Google Play today. Colonel
0: Peter Mansour, the former executive officer to General David Petraeus in Iraq. He's a professor at Ohio State University and the author of Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War. And I contacted Colonel Mansoor earlier in the week and I asked him by way of email what he thought the uh, situation was that had developed between North Korea and the United States. Colonel Mansoor, m- m- may I read the uh, the email before you get into it?
3: sure
0: yeah uh, as well as kim jong un getting a photo op and the suspension of us r o k that's republic of korea military exercises while the united states gets promises nk2 USOA, 0 so a shout out for the north korean leader um, explain that to us please
3: yeah it's a good world cup score and it is isn't it you, given that the us team isn't even in the world cup i think it's a, it's a very fitting uh, parallel um You know, North Korea came to the summit. They had specific goals. Uh, President Trump came to the summit, and he thought his uh, peculiar brand of personal magnetism would somehow uh, seal the deal. And um, he was enamored with the promises that Kim Jong-un gave to denuclearize. He thought that was somehow a big breakthrough, not understanding that those promises had been given about four or five times in the past and not followed through on and uh, in return, uh, uh, North Korea asked uh, for us to suspend our military training exercises with South Korea, and the president agreed without any quid pro quo on uh, on North Korea's side. And, and so, it is um, it's it's truly um, outrageous that uh, you know we came into the summit so unprepared, and uh, and and left it really with nothing. The the language of the, of the memo <clears throat> that was agreed on is uh, actually less restrictive than the language of the memos that have uh, been agreed on in the past that, uh, again, have not been followed through on. So I, um, I don't think this is peace in our time, uh, and um, I think Donald Trump got played.
0: So you're not expecting uh, North Korea to denuclearize?
3: I don't think that will be the case at all. Um, they they would want a process where over a period of fifteen or twenty years, step by step, they they denuclearize. In the meantime, they want a, the the sanctions to be lifted, and um, you know, if possible, U.S. troops our um, uh, presence on the Korean Peninsula reduced or eliminated. I mean, this is this would be their going-in position. Uh, our position. I would think would be uh you denuclearize totally and and in a fairly rapid manner and um and then we'll we'll lift the sanctions. There's a huge gap between those two positions and I don't know how the language of this memo that was agreed on squares the circle in that regard.
0: Uh it, how do you expect President Trump to respond? I mean, he'd said that He would know within 60 seconds who he was dealing with, whether he was dealing with somebody he could do business with, he being Kim. Uh, How do you expect the president to respond if over a fairly short period of time it becomes quite obvious that North Korea isn't interested in following through on anything President Trump thinks they're going to follow through on?
3: Yeah, it's a it's a good question. We have a, a president who enrages our enemies and uh, and sucks up to our or enrages our allies and sucks up to our enemies. And uh, he he is enamored with uh, strong leaders around the world, uh, authoritarian leaders, uh, Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong Un, uh, you know Duterte in the Philippines, and others. Um, you know he 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 just is. There's a magnetism about him that it draws him to strong men regardless of the political system that they represent. Um, So I don't know how he would react if all of a sudden uh, North Korea um, would, you know, backs out of some sort of complete denuclearization or rapid denuclearization. My guess is North Korea would know how to play him. Um, And they would be, you know, the Chinese would be whispering in their ear, Mm -hmm. uh, just flatter his ego and you'll get what you want. And so far that's worked pretty well.
0: Don't let him take it personally.
3: Yeah. uh, You know, uh, hold a big military parade for him in Pyongyang and tell him he's the the greatest man ever. And, and, you know, you basically get your way. I think maybe Prime Minister Trudeau needs to take a page (laughs) out of that playbook.
0: Do you think the situation with North Korea and their nukes has actually become more uh, maybe dangerous as a Strong word, but I'll use it. Is it more more dangerous than it might have been? Uh, more dangerous now than it might have been a month ago.
3: Um, no, I think uh, it, it's pretty clear that President Trump is backing off the fire and fury rhetoric. Um, there has been some movement on North Korea's side to eliminate their oh, at least a couple of their test sites, uh, and so th- actually the movement is in the right direction. Uh, the end game is what's very unclear. So. I, I don't know that there's a, a, a real threat of conflict uh, right right now. It certainly, I think, has, has lessened from six months ago.
0: So a couple of years ago, the concern the military had with the man was with the man who was in the White House, Barack Obama, for doing virtually nothing, having red lines in Syria, which meant nothing. Now there's President Trump, who uh, is a strong supporter of the military, reminds us about that on a regular basis, but now the military is looking at what he's done in, in that meeting with Kim. Do military leaders quietly prep for any number of possible scenarios with Kim, regardless of President Trump's apparent enthusiasm?
3: Absolutely. I, I think uh, my guess is even though the exercises have been canceled, <clears throat> they may um, they may still hold some sort of uh, computer war games and so forth to, to prepare for any number of options, whether it be a North Korean attack or a North Korean collapse, uh, both of which would require some sort of uh, military response by uh, South Korea and the United States. So, um, you know, life goes on for the military. They take their orders from the president and they'll follow through, but they're also, go- you know, going to make sure that their, their saber Re- remain sharp and, and uh, that they're ready for any contingency. You
0: know, one one final thought, Colonel Mentzer. Um I, I was thinking or my overriding thought was, yeah, I, I expect them to show some collegiality and I expect Donald Trump to be doing some fist pumping and shoulder grabbing and, uh, hey, we're both guys and we'll go bowling after this is all over. But he would maintain some distance because of the the threats that uh, Kim jong-un had directed toward the United States as recently as weeks ago that was not apparent it isn't apparent now uh, I'm honestly I was surprised at how this turned out how how buddy buddy they became at a time when there was this was way too early for that kind of relationship to be to be uh, described by the President of the United States
3: yeah I, I think you have to remember that this is not about the united states in the president's mind it's about the president um, and provided his ego is uh, uh... you know assuaged and uh... and that he comes out of any sort of meeting looking good um, then he will be buddy buddy with whoever's on the other side of the table um, you know i uh, i think he's doing a disservice to the united states and our allies uh... by um, you know, sucking up to our enemies and enraging our friends. The the tweets he made about your prime minister is an uh, example of that. Um, but it's what we're going to have to live with until there's another, you know, election in the United States, at, at least in, in, in maybe six more years. So this is the new normal, unfortunately, for this administration. And, uh, you know, we got to buckle up our seatbelts because it's going to be a bumpy ride from this point on.
0: Colonel Mansour, always good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. That's uh, right. Colonel Peter Mansoor, who was the executive officer to General David Petraeus in Iraq, who was also a, a tank commander in, uh, brigade tank commander in, in Europe with NATO. And uh, his book is just, um, well, it's a fabulous read about, um, about uh, Iraq and the surge. And it's titled Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus. And the remaking of the Iraq War. The Roy Green Show podcast is the only podcast hosted
1: by Roy Green, which makes sense. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play.
0: Tom Quiggin is the primary contributor to the podcast The Quiggin Report. That's Q U I G G I N. During his 25 years in the intelligence community, he was also an arms control inspector under the Vienna document. And the conventional forces in Europe treaty, and we want to talk to Tom, who's good enough to provide us with this time quite regularly about this issue of North Korea, and what may or may not happen, what could happen if Mr. Kim Jong Un decides he is going to denuclearize. What does a weapons inspector do? What's the role, Tom? Thank you for thank you for the time. And what just fundamentally, what's the greatest challenge of being a weapons inspector?
4: Uh, well, thanks for inviting me to the to the show, Roy. Um, the greatest challenge to, to any arms control uh, agreement, the greatest challenge to any arms control inspector is to ensure that you have a good legally binding treaty in place to start with. So I mean right now with North Korea and South Korea and America and China of course there is no uh, arms control treaty in place. There is just a brief general and ambiguous statement. But what we need to see is a treaty which will be legally binding. It has to be a no-notice treaty it has to be intrusive. It has to allow for on-site inspections with the inspectors of your choice. And those inspectors have to be able to go at the time and the place of your choosing with no geographic limitations. This is one of the big failures of the Iranian nuclear agreement is they didn't have those key figures in place. So this is one of the things to watch for in the, uh, in the deal with North Korea and South Korea.
0: Can you share an experience that you had while inspecting weapon systems?
4: Well, um, just just maybe, perhaps by way of explanation, under the conventional forces in Europe treaty, uh, which could serve as a good model for the uh, North Korean situation, is we had exactly that. We had a treaty in place which allowed us to go to Russia or Belarus or Poland or Ukraine or wherever. Uh, we would show up in, say, for instance, Moscow in Russia, and only once we got to the airport in Moscow or to their airbase would we then tell them, which base we wanted to go and then the clock started ticking and typically they would get us there by that evening so that we could see the base immediately the same day. Once we arrived at the base there was a list of equipment, a list of buildings, etc. that was supposed to be at the base and then we were given freedom of the base and the surrounding area to inspect every shed, every building, every hangar, every runway, every piece of equipment or whatever as we chose to do it. So we had a high degree of confidence in that treaty while we were doing it with the, with the Russians and others, exactly for that reason. It was no notice, uh, it was, had no geographic limitations on it, and we had the right to move about all the buildings and areas at our own time and our own speed, uh, within a very few limitations. So uh, I did several of these things. Uh, one of the real shocking ones to us, I remember at the time, was we did an inspection in eastern Ukraine, When we landed in Kiev, all was good. We got met by the Ukrainians. The language of the inspection was to be Ukrainian and English. Um, But when we got to eastern Ukraine in a place called Konotop, we discovered that no one there could actually speak Ukrainian, (laughs) uh, given the nature of the area, and we had to switch the language to Russian. And for us, that was a real education. When you think about what's going on in Ukraine right now, it was like wow that was interesting sure. most of eastern ukraine is in fact run by russians
0: when you say we are you talking about nato
4: uh this was run uh the conventional forces in europe treaty was run between nato and what was at the time the warsaw pact and what eventually would become uh a variety of countries i.e russia belarus poland etc okay so yeah it was uh, carried out
1: under the auspices of nato so- Visit Apple Podcasts or Google Play now and sign up for the Roy Green Show podcast 100% free. 100% Roy.
0: Back to Tom for a couple of minutes. Primary contributor to the podcast, the Quiggin Report. He was an arms control inspector under the Vienna Document and the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty. Tom, can a nation hide what it wants, true from weapons inspection teams? Now you said you, when you went to Russia. You didn't tell them where you wanted to go until you were there. But can they be so well prepared that they can pretty well hide what they don't want you to see?
4: A couple of different things, Roy. One is with respect to North Korea, have to remember it's actually a pretty small space. It's about one-fifth the size of Saskatchewan. So for them to hide anything of any substance, like a nuclear test site or a nuclear launching site, would be incredibly difficult. Good point. The, The other thing is the technology today is not the technology of the 1950s uh so for instance we know that the mountain where north korea was doing their nuclear tests actually moved considerably uh it shrank about uh, 12 feet in height and moved several feet uh laterally after the last nuclear explosion and this was determined by what's called a synthetic aperture radar satellite whose ground measuring capability is that accurate so we know that for instance that nuclear test site has probably collapsed internally and is now no longer useful So with a combination of national technical means technology, which is to say satellites and electronic eavesdropping, combined with an effective, intrusive, on-site arms control inspection, it's getting very difficult for countries to hide major projects such as nuclear test sites, missile launching sites, and that kind of
2: activity.
0: All right, let me ask you one more quick question. What do you expect out of North Korea after watching the interchange between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, uh, do you expect that something positive is going to come out of this, or do you think that that Kim was very good at playing the president of the United States?
4: Uh, positive things have already happened. The nuclear tests, uh, the last one was September 2017, and the missile tests, the last one was in November, they've stopped. You've had the meeting itself, which was amazing. That was the first time there was a meeting between North Korean president and an American president uh, ever, So like first time in 68 years since the war stopped, what we need to see happen next, and this will be the method of measuring what's going on, is will there be a series of confidence and security building measures, which is to say a series of small measures, which are relatively minor but very transparent. So for instance, an exchange of military officers so you can observe each each other's exercises. So we have a, a brief general ambiguous agreement to start. It will move into confidence and security building measures gradually. And then eventually it has to lead to an actual legally binding intrusive on-site arms control and inspection treaty. And folks, remember, this can take months and years, not days and weeks. So, for instance, the START talks with the Soviet Union went on for years mm-hmm. before they were finally successful. But okay. successful they were.
0: Tom, thank you. Always good talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ray. Tom Quiggin, the Quiggin Report is uh, a podcast. Now, I I should have asked him whether YouTube is letting them on uh, YouTube yet. They should, but anyway, uh, Donald Trump has said he's not, uh, or that he's going to push, punish Canada, not push. He's going to punish Canada because of Justin Trudeau's statements. So what about that? And uh, when Justin Trudeau is asked about whether Mr. Trump assured him that no sunset clause was necessary for the NAFTA agreement. When Justin Trudeau won't answer whether Donald Trump, in fact, promised that, and maybe that's what caused Trump to explode, is Trudeau being less than honest with Canadians. Professor Christopher Adams joins us on The Roy Green Show, political scientist and author based at St. Paul's College in Winnipeg. Professor Adams, thank you so much for the time. Thanks, Roy. Nice to be on your national show. How do you view the uh, this apparent conflict between Donald Trump and Justin Trudeau? Are we talking about something that's growing yeah. here or something that's going to blow over fairly quickly?
5: Well, I, I, I think it's, it's just part of the pattern of what we've seen with President Trump since he was elected, you know, with his America First promise. You know, he, he withdrew from the Paris Climate Accord, the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, he's about to pull out of the UN Human uh, Rights uh, Council with the United Nations so on and so forth. So I, I think it's a mistake just to see this as a Trudeau versus Trump. I, I think it's uh, uh, more the G6 plus one versus Trump. But I, I do think that, you know, it brings to mind some of the um, things that have occurred between prime ministers and, and presidents in the past. And, you know, there was a, an incident with uh, Lyndon D. Johnson when he grabbed Prime Minister Pearson by the lapels and shook him. Uh, over being lectured about the Vietnam War and then President Nixon calling Pierre Trudeau uh, a, 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 a bad word that starts with P and ends with K so so there have been times where relationships have been bad but I but I think this is a very deep deeply bad bad relationship that that I don't know uh, how any of the two parties are going to get out of
0: so this is not going to end anytime soon this is just going to accelerate
5: that's right Roy but at the same time it's a gift in a way to the Liberal Party. If you uh, take a look at the national polls that have been coming out over the past few months, that the the, uh, Conservative Party of Canada is pretty well in a statistical uh, tie with the Liberals, and the seat projections still have the Liberals ahead, but still it's something which I think will be of uh, benefit to Justin Trudeau as as he bends off the Conservative Party.
0: What about uh, the fact that Trudeau wouldn't answer the question about whether Trump dropped the insistence on a NAFTA sunset clause in their discussions, that disturbs a lot of people. Lisa Rait, the former cabinet minister in the Stephen Harper government, now a conservative frontbencher, uh, brought that question forward and asked Mr. Trudeau twice, and twice he refused to answer.
5: Yeah, I, I, think, I think that uh, there are ticklish things to be dealing with. Uh, uh, I think we have to remember the NAFTA deal is still not a dead deal. And uh, there are conversations in the back rooms and conversations with the media. And I'm guessing, an educated guess here, is that Trudeau is is trying to balance the two. Uh, But you know, when after the past, I think this has woken Canada up that a few months ago we thought, okay, well, the Americans do want NAFTA, the White House wants NAFTA, but they're just playing a hardball. But now that we see the pattern of, of other things transpiring, especially over the past week, I think that we we've had a big uh, wake wake up call, especially with, you know, hearing words by Peter Navarro, the top economic advisor to the president, saying there's a special place in hell for Justin Trudeau.
0: Yeah, uh, he took those words back, but they it, it resonated yeah. nevertheless. And then Larry Kudlow said the same thing.
5: Yeah, yeah. So so, and I I think that's the other lesson that we've drawn here, Roy, is um, up until about six months ago, we we're hearing that it's mostly the president driving this agenda and that many many of his advisors in the White House are sort of like keeping him on a straight and narrow, or trying to, but now we realize that really, like people like Mike, Mike Pompeo, Peter Navarro, um, others, it, uh, that, that actually is, is uh, quite deep now in, in the executive part of
0: power. Are they just living up to their election commitment of make America great again? In other words, we're doing this for the United States. We're not doing it for anybody else in the world. We're working for the United States. And if you get in our way, and if you, we, we we consider you to be a negative yeah. influence on our getting the U.S. back where we want it or where we wanted, period, then we're going to get you out of our way. Is that just is that just yeah. the United States' position now that we should expect going forward, regardless of yeah. what they're dealing yeah. with in the world?
5: Absolutely right. Is is the uh, president's uh, uh, living to his promises? And uh, in our jaded uh, world now, we often think. <laughs> Uh, politicians don't live up to their promises, and uh, and here he is living up to his promises, much to the discomfort of uh, Canadians and, and Europeans and Japanese.
0: He doesn't care what the rest of the world thinks. He cares yeah, about, I, what Americans right, are thinking of
5: him. It. It's a, it's an old-fashioned uh, isolationist movement uh, out of the U.S. right now.
0: Uh, when Mr. Trump threatens to punish the people of Canada because of Justin Trudeau, what might be on a short list?
5: Uh, well... <laughs> I can't really uh, um, guess that, but at the same time, I think one thing that we have to keep in mind is the power of the of the state governments and of Congress, mm-hmm. and that um, they uh, unlike Canada, which you know has provinces and, and Parliament. Uh, in the United States, power is more diffused than here, and and so there are many states, especially in the northern half of the United States, which are very concerned about the trade deals. And we're going into a midterm election in the fall in which uh, the Republicans might lose control of, of Congress. So, so I think things might uh, uh, change somewhat over the next six months.
0: What do you see, uh, Professor Adams, if in the November midterm elections, and generally the party that wins the presidency and maybe yeah. does well in Congress, which obviously the GOP did winning all three, um, mm-hmm. but it's fairly fairly uh, traditional for them then to not do that well in the first midterms. So if right. the, the GOP were to lose control of the Senate and possibly control of the House, but well, they still have the presidency, do those other two branches outweigh the presidency, or are they then even?
5: Think Things could get stalled, and, and uh, you just have to look at other administrations like uh, Jimmy Carter's administration couldn't get anything done in large part because of the divisions. And I go back to even thinking about Abe Lincoln. He lost very badly in the midterm elections, and he said, I'm too old to cry, and it hurts too much to laugh. <laughs> so I, I think I will. But at the same time, uh, Trump, Trump is playing as strongly as he can the executive card, and, and I think that he'll play it as strongly as any president in, in the history of the United States. And so we'll have to see what things get tested.
0: I suppose he could always say what Barack Obama said, I have a pen and I have a phone. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of power that's in that Oval Office. There's a tremendous amount of power in that office. That's right.
5: And, And Americans elected a strong man, to use the old political science expression, and he's behaving like one right
0: now. Yeah, yeah. Good talking to you, Professor Adams. I hope you'll come back.
5: Thanks, Roy. Take care of yourself. Thank Have you. a great rest of the
1: week. Bye-bye. Want to hear more Roy Green? We've got you covered with the Roy Green Show podcast. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play.
0: It is time for Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca. Linda Leatherdale, at Linda Leatherdale on Twitter, Vice President of Cambria Canada, former money editor of the Toronto Sun, Catherine, the former president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and Michelle Simpson who used to be the seatmate for president uh president uh, Trudeau <laughs> that's and, about what it is yeah and and you had to make sure that every hair was perfectly in place right did he uh, did, did he ever ask you about that did he ever say do i look good oh yeah
6: yeah
0: <laughs> you,
7: you don't think <laughs> Okay. How, he'd say, "How do
8: I look?" Himself. They and, definitely wouldn't be giving you a washroom when you talk like that.
0: <laughs> and, and, and what did you say, Michelle, when he said, "How how do I look?"
7: Um, honestly, I pretended I didn't hear him, <laughs> so I never responded. Like I said, he came in a linen suit that was white into the house. With um, Birks, Birkenstocks, and I said to him, you look like Panama Jack.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and he said, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, oh, uh, this, is, oh, this is a great way to start. <laughs> Catherine Swift, Linda Lovedale, Michelle Simpson. Um, I want to play back for you in a couple of minutes, 90 seconds of a conversation we had with Brad Batten who's an Australian member of parliament who joined us last year and spoke to us about why Australia got rid of the carbon tax, its carbon tax, that it had had in place for some two years. Do we we have something in the background? Who's got – somebody got a radio on or
8: – No, no, not me, no.
0: I think you've – the studio, maybe you've got something on that you shouldn't have on. Okay. Okay. Um, Let me begin uh, with this. Why? And I played the clip earlier, Lisa Raitt asking Justin Trudeau during question period about whether or not Donald Trump had, in fact, uh, made a commitment to Mr. Trudeau that no sunset clause was necessary in in the NAFTA agreement. And uh, did, uh, did, did Donald Trump, in fact, make that kind of commitment to Justin Trudeau? Mr. Trudeau didn't answer the question. He talked around it, talked around it, talked around it. Michelle, what do you make of that?
7: Yeah, you know, Roy, I don't trust any of them. (laughs) And I'm not sure she's wrong, but I I don't, I I think I don't trust any of them to tell the truth. What was interesting,
8: though, about this whole question of whether or not the sunset clause was offered up by Trump as a you know, appeasement or whatever, was that it was a story reported on CBC of all places.
5: Mm -hmm.
8: Initially, that was the source. And then, of course, it got discussed beyond that. But, I mean, you know, CBC isn't exactly the (laughs) (laughs) liberal-hating, you know, uh, media outlet out there. So the fact that it, 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 it was reported by other Canadians who were supposedly in the room, like, like diplomats or, you know, senior people involved with NAFTA. So, frankly, what I thought about it was, when Trudeau refused to, you know, confirm or deny, I guess you could say, to me, that meant it probably was offered. Because if it wasn't offered, why would he just say, no, it wasn't, and, and put it to bed?
0: Yeah, I, I, right. I agree with that. And I also think that, and I said this earlier, Linda, and I, that may be utterly, totally too cynical, but I have a feeling that Mr. Trudeau memorizes certain uh, expected uh, answers to certain expected questions. So he is expecting Talking X numbers point. of questions, right? And he's, he's given answers that he's supposed to give that won't get him into trouble, and he memorizes the answers. That's why he never deviates from the script.
9: Well, I, I listened, Roy, to that whole thing, and it's like, come on. He never answered the question, which typically he doesn't. Um, going back to the Sunset Clause, you know, Roy, whether Trump offered it up or not, i got to say I'm kind of in favor of it, because I think for democracy and for people to have the vote, I, I, you know, NAFTA, yes, it's very important to Canada. Yes, it's important to all of us. But let's not forget, there were people who were opposed to it when, when Brian Moroni first was ushering in, at the same time we got the GST. I remember this. And I think for democracy, we should review it every five
8: years. Well, not (laughs) only that, Linda, and and I never understood this being some kind of line in the sand for Trudeau. It didn't make sense because the existing trade deal already has built into it measures that if any party wants to get out of it, they can do so. And there's certain, you know, there's certain procedures to follow. But it's not as if, you know, there aren't things along those lines currently built into
3: yeah,
0: and a five-year agreement. a five-year sunset clause was not going to require. It wasn't a question of reviewing it. It was going to be should it be renewed?
7: Yeah, and that's the scary. It's a big part. difference. It's yeah. for investment. The, the investors from outside the country or inside the country, they still look at five years.
0: You know what I need to do? I need to play this for because people will have joined us since the last time we aired this. So we're going to play it back for you now. Lisa Raitt, asking the Prime Minister whether or not Donald Trump had offered a NAFTA agreement without a sunset clause. Listen. Mr.
9: Speaker, the reports that President Trump withdrew the five-year sunset clause negotiating tool within NAFTA negotiations. Can the Prime Minister indicate whether this is true?
6: The Honorable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, I thank the member opposite for the question. Allow me to first begin by thanking uh, the members of the opposition, indeed all Canadians, for demonstrating that uh, when the moment is right, we all stand together firmly to support Canadians across party lines, across the country, across all provinces. It is a very clear message and a testament to who we are as Canadians. On this specific issue, I can uh, say that we are continuing. Uh, to discuss modernizing and improving NAFTA. Uh, we've continued to make it clear that a uh, final sunset clause is uh, unacceptable, that we cannot sign a trade deal uh, that automatically expires every five years. Uh, but we continue to look for ways to move forward to modernize and improve NAFTA for people on both sides of the border. Honourable Member for Milton.
9: So, Mr. Speaker, we understand Canada's position that it's very difficult to sign a trade deal that's sunset after five years. But the crux of the question is this. Did the President of the United States remove this demand from the negotiating table, yes or no?
6: The Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, uh, I had a meeting with the president on Friday afternoon, in which we had uh, a very constructive conversation on a broad range of issues. We've continued uh, to impress upon how important it is to uh, to modernize and improve NAFTA, and we will continue to engage on a broad range of issues uh, where Canada is uh, standing firm, uh, where the United States is uh, looking for concessions. We're going to continue to work and demonstrate that uh, no, we will not accept a sunset clause in NAFTA.
0: So. I know how he normally speaks, and I know that wasn't normal Justin Trudeau speak. Do uh, you tell me what you think, Michelle? Does that sound like it was memorized?
7: No. Any time you hear him gasping like he's drowning, <gasps> that tells me it wasn't rehearsed.
0: Okay, I'll look for that in the future.
9: Yeah. I don't know. It sounded like it was rehearsed to me. He said the same thing over and over again, and he didn't answer the question.
7: Yeah. Well, who
9: does? What politician
7: answers the question? <laughs> so well, true. like they say about question period.
4: I'll it's tell you. Not I'll, t- I'll tell you. Yeah.
0: I'll tell you who answers questions. Scott Moe of Saskatchewan. <laughs> oh yeah. He does. He's been on this program on a, on three occasions now. And I ask him a question, I get an answer immediately. No no vacillating, no dilly-dallying and shilly-shallying or whatever else it is. He answers the
1: question. The Roy Green Show podcast, ready and waiting for you anywhere, anytime. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Google Play today.
0: Back with Catherine Swift, workingcanadians.ca. Michelle Simpson, at Michelle Simpson, former liberal member of parliament and uh, fashion critic for the prime minister. And Linda Leatherdale, former money editor, Toronto Sun, Vice President Cambria, Canada. So the carbon tax, huge issue in this country. Have a listen. And I had last year spoke with Brad Batten, who's an Australian member of Parliament, and he was on the show talking specifically about why Australia dropped its carbon tax. Here's what he said.
10: Uh, we had a, a, some reviews on that carbon tax. At the time, Tony Abbott was our leader federally um, and obviously won the election uh, on the axe tax was his, uh, his slogan during that time. The carbon tax, when it was brought in, uh, and very similar to the position you're in now with um, Justin Trudeau, there was no case studies, there was no groundwork done, there was no understanding how it was going to affect business, how it was going to affect families, particularly with costs and increased electricity. And then the result of that was businesses started to um, get concerned about what was going to happen with their future and how much it was going to um, cost them in the long run. The centre-left parties or the left-wing parties were trying to sell it that the cost of this was just, an, you know, the big businesses were going to pay and the big businesses were going to have to um, work out ways to either save on carbon or pay out of their own pockets, a bit of a penalty for them. The reality was, uh, all of us know, big businesses pass on those costs and that goes down to family homes. So that was when we got involved more and more from the, uh, the Liberal Party over here now, obviously people over there have to understand the Liberal Party over here is a centre-right party not a centre-left so we actually started to focus on how that was going to affect families um, and the actual costs on that and there was a range in how much it was going to cost but the implementation of it was going to cost about $150 per year to a family that was going to increase increase quite quickly on the same model over there with the scaling of the carbon tax that was going to increase quite quickly to over $1,000 per family estimated.
0: So that's from Australia, from Brad Batten. The Australians also printed this. Repealing the carbon tax and the clean energy package is designed to boost Australia's economic growth. This was the federal government's writing. Increase jobs and enhance Australia's international competitiveness by removing an unnecessary tax which hurts businesses and families. This is two years after they had been living with the carbon tax. Catherine, you're the economist.
8: Well... uh It's not just, um, you know, it's not just Australia. We've seen a number of countries, I remember Spain. Spain found, and they were early adopters of a carbon tax as well, they found that for every green job, because, you know, we're always promised there's going to be these wonderful green jobs created by a carbon tax. Um, And what they found in Spain, for example, was for every one green job created, Uh, They lost six in the rest of the economy, (laughs) so obviously a big loser. We see Germany, another early adopter, now building coal plants like crazy. Uh, It seems that virtually, well, every single country that I'm aware of that that went into some version of, of carbon tax, cap and trade, whatever, prior to Canada, has backed off it. Because they realize it hurts the economy, it hurts average people. Big time, hurts everybody's pocketbook. We've seen what's happened in Ontario with skyrocketing hydro. It's disgraceful, really. Disgraceful that you know po- political decisions of governments that are based. and on. one thing I loved about what you just played there, Roy, he said there was no studies done. Well, what did we see in the House of Commons last
0: week? Well, exactly. Example? Exactly. Yeah. Let me just read you. Let me, no, just no read you let me read you something uh, Beauty. Jason Kenny posted this. And he writes, this may explain why Justin Trudeau and his allies are fighting so hard to conceal the cost of their carbon tax. Uh, um, Laurie Goldstein from The Sun, great guy. Uh, I've known Laurie for many, many years, just a tremendous journalist. Uh, He wrote a column called Trudeau's Secret Carbon Price Exposed, just quoting from what uh, Jason Kenney placed on his Twitter account. According to the National Post, Environment and Climate Change Minister Catherine McKenna was advised by experts... In her department, after taking office, that reaching Trudeau's goal of reducing Canada's emissions to 30% below 2005 levels by 2030 would require a national carbon price of $100 by 2020, not $50 by 2022. In that context, University of Calgary economist Jennifer Winters estimates the annual cost of a $100 carbon price on the average Canadian household are... Ontario, $1,414. Alberta, $2,223. British Columbia, $1,206. Quebec, $1,324. Saskatchewan, $2,065. Nova Scotia, $2,240. New Brunswick, $1,929. Newfoundland and Labrador, $1,718. Prince Edward Island, $1,577. And Manitoba, $1,367. So every family would be significantly economically impacted, Linda, by a carbon tax. or a price of $100 by 2020, not $50 by 2022.
9: Unbelievable. You know, Catherine said it, Ontario, that's why we just had this election. That's why that hydro and the cost for families was a lightning rod. And to to say, so here I say, here, here, Doug Ford, he's promising to get rid of this. That's what Ontario needs. He also says we're going to get tough on the use of polluters. There's ways and means of doing it, but yes, the families are overburdened, right. and New Zealand saw it, Catherine's right, other countries know it, and consumers account for two-thirds of our economy, yeah. we're taxed to death, we need a break, we don't need higher And taxes.
0: Michelle, this affects every province across Canada, every province. Yep,
9: yeah.
7: but you know what? We have cap and trade. We don't have a carbon tax yet, but that's where Doug Ford has to be careful, because Justin Trudeau can impose whatever he wants,
0: and good luck with that in October of two thousand and nineteen. Well, exactly. That, that's that's right. the
7: kicker. And frankly,
8: I think Ford would be smart. And cap, by the way, cap and trade, it, where it's been implemented around the world, Europe being a good example, has been a, a total fiasco. Corporations yeah. have made out no. Of I agree.
0: Yep. And Sammy Wilson, who was the former. Uh, environment minister and uh, um, finance minister for Northern Ireland was on the show talking about it as being a total disaster for his country and that country's economy. Beauties, that's it. Oh, no. no shot. Oh, is that oh, it? Shot. That's it. Okay. That's it for this week, but we'll talk again next Saturday. Absolutely. Y'all are the best. I love that photograph of the golf course, Catherine. It was great fun. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
1: Want to hear more Roy Green? We've got you covered with the Roy Green Show podcast. (laughs) Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play.
0: And that's our podcast for this Saturday, June the 16th. Thanks for joining
1: us. The Roy Green Show podcast is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you like what you hear, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a review and tell a friend.